please turn with me to um, Genesis chapter 1. That's where we'll begin today. Genesis chapter 1. This will not be a, a Christmas message today. We'll get one of those on Christmas Eve. We have some time here in between uh, one sermon series and the next that we often like to use for topical type sermons where we cover a topic rather than a specific section of Scripture. And that's always harder for me. I'm more of a fish out of water with that. Uh, the way that uh, you know, I was trained and the way that preachers should preach is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, everything in context. And so <clears throat> that's a little, uh, it's a little different to do a topical message. And as I was looking over my notes last night, I was thinking, man, I hope, I just, I hope I'm not like ranting. I'm picking something I wanted to speak on, and I might, it may just be ranting. I don't know. I hope that's not the case. I hope it's something that uh, we can all benefit from, learn and grow from, and uh, that God would bless this time together. So why don't we pray toward that end, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for the ways that you have gifted us. You've given us so many things that we can be thankful for, and we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. You've revealed your design and your plan and your word. Help us to take hold of that today. And God, we ask together that though I'm a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that you would make your word clear to your people and that you would anoint me to preach faithfully and to share faithfully what it is that you've said. God, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I want to start off today with some earth-shattering statements, okay? Prepare to have your world rocked. Um, there is such a thing as men, and there's such a thing as women. Um, and the two can't become the other. No one's throwing anything yet. This is good. This is good, okay? In our world today, of course, this is a paradigm shift to say that Male is male and female is female, and you can't cross that chasm. Uh, that's kind of like almost a minority voice today, which is crazy, isn't it? It sure feels that way, that's a minority voice. But that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, I've written two books. I've had two books published, one self-published and the other through a publisher. And I, I didn't realize this until after some time that they're both about God's design for the sexes, both, both of those books. God's design for men and women. And that's not, it wasn't intentional on my part. It's just kind of the way it was. I don't consider that to be particularly a passion subject for me that I always revert to. It's just kind of how it worked out. And I guess we could say, though, if we're looking at the culture, um, it is needed. That conversation is very much needed. Um, hopefully, I've been a helpful voice toward that end. But um, we as Christians have to know why we believe what we believe why there is male, why there is female, why marriage is one man and one woman. We have to understand why we believe that. And uh, I hope that through our study this morning, as we look at what God has said, that we will be confirmed and, and strengthened in this view. I want to go back to Genesis 1.26 that Jerry read for us at the opening. Genesis 1.26 and 27. Um, I wanted to start this conversation by talking about marriage specifically, and, uh, and I want us to start right here at the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, 
And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So as we approach this subject today of God's design for the sexes, God's design and role given to men and given to women, uh, Again, I want to start talking about marriage, and even getting to that subject, I kind of want to start far out and approach that from maybe a perspective you're not anticipating. Hopefully, this won't be a two-hour sermon. Uh, that's one other thing I noticed when I looked at my notes is, wow, that's three sermons, and here we go. Uh, so, <clears throat> our God is a God of both unity and diversity. This is something I've talked about before. It's something I'm passionate about if I'm thinking about my passion subjects. This is one of them that God is a God of unity and diversity. And we can see that by looking at the way He has revealed Himself in Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. There are three persons. There's one God. This is what Scripture teaches. Scripture is very clear that there's one God. Scripture is also very clear that God the Father is God, Jesus Christ is God the Son, and the Holy Spirit is also God. One God and three persons. So we are not Arians, those who believe that God the Father exists and the Son and the Spirit are creations of the Father. We don't believe that. We don't believe that the Son was created, but that He is eternally God. Same with the Spirit. We are not Sibelians who say that there's one God who takes turns being Father, Son, and Spirit. Sometimes He's Father, sometimes He's Son, sometimes He's Spirit. We believe the three persons are coexistent, simultaneous for all eternity. We are not tritheists. We don't say that God the Father is one God, God the Son is another God, and God the Son, or God the Spirit, rather, is a third God. We don't believe that. We don't believe in three gods. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. One God. So there's one God, and there are three persons. They are coexistent. They are co-eternal. Now, fittingly, the Creator's nature is reflected in His creation. Creation itself has unity and diversity in it. Creation itself, as you look around, is not just all one thing, and it's not just a bunch of different random things. Creation has unity and diversity in it. So when we look at the animal kingdom, we recognize that there are a bunch of animals that fall under the heading of animal, but not all are the same. You take mammals specifically. There are mammals that exist out there in the animal kingdom, but we recognize, even though they're unified under that heading, that a giraffe is different than a whale, right? Those are two very different mammals, and yet they are unified in the fact that they are both animals and they're both mammals. If you went shopping for apples, perhaps some of you men were told to pick up some apples from the store, and you go to the store and you recognize apples aren't totally unified, they're pretty diverse. There are a lot of different apples out there. In fact, I googled it, I had to look it up. Um, in the world today, there are over 7,500 types of apples. Now, undoubtedly, many of those are man-made as we've tweaked things along the way. But naturally, there are lots of different types of apples, yet they're all apples. There's unity and diversity in creation reflecting the Creator who made everything. And this can also be seen, as we're focusing on today, in male and female. Look again at Genesis 1.27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Here's the diversity. Male and female, He created them. 
So male and female are both human, both man with a capital N, the M. They make mankind. However, there's diversity. There are differences between men and women. And I trust I don't have to teach you that here this morning. We could really go on for a while if we wanted to list those differences. But we recognize that men and women are different, and yet they're the same in the sense that men and women are made in the image of God. The one image of God is shared by both male and female. And even though they're one and and different in their natural state, just as we're born into this world, there's also this added reality that God goes on to explain in Genesis chapter 2, that when male and female come together in marriage, they become one again in a new and a deeper and more intimate type of way. They can become one flesh. So the heart of marriage, we could say, is this unity and diversity. We have it even when we're not married to each other. But even in marriage itself, we have it in a deeper sense, this unity and diversity. So as it follows the intentional design of God to glorify His nature, we can all say that marriage is very good. Marriage is very good. It's created by God. It's designed by God, and it reflects even His nature. Let's press into it more there in Genesis 2, starting at verse 18 the last third or so of the chapter, Genesis 2, 18. Look at how he explains it in even more detail. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So from the beginning, men and women were different. Even before the fall, this is all before chapter 3, of course. Even before that, men and women were different. And yet, where did woman come from? Man. Man's side. And so there's unity and diversity, even in our origin. But this is not just the origin of woman that we're looking at. This is the origin of marriage itself. And marriage itself is worth defending, Christians. Marriage is worth defending. That there are two sexes, as God created them, male and female, that's it. Despite what some Harvard professor might you know, go on about forever and ever, about how many pronouns and different genders there are, There are two sexes, male and female. God created them. And marriage, no matter what anyone else says, marriage is one man and one woman coming together in covenant to be together for the rest of their lives. That's what marriage is. And marriage is an intentional design by God. So consider this New Testament command that we have in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Some say it's the Apostle Paul, but there's no way to know for sure. In Hebrews 13, 4, it says that marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, 
For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. As Christians, we are to hold in high esteem marriage. We are to defend it because it's a creation of God and it is very good. Not just that it reflects His nature and it reflects His goodness as the sovereign creator of all things, but what's more is that marriage now also reflects Christ and His church. In the New Testament, Paul quotes Genesis and he says that man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. And he says, I'll tell you something amazing. This even applies to Christ and his church. So marriage, of course, is something given to us creatures, one man, one woman, both creatures coming together to enjoy this amazing relationship as designed by God, this covenant that we can enter into. And yet we see the creator of marriage stepping into creation to call out from his creatures a bride for himself, the church, the, the people that he died for, the people that he rose again, that they may be justified, the, the people that he's interceding for now in heaven, the people he's coming back to get. He's coming back to get his bride to take us to the Father's house. Isn't that an amazing picture that God has given us? of what Jesus is to the church, not just Lord and Savior, but also the bridegroom for the church. And it's for all of those who have placed their faith in Christ, this relationship with Jesus that we collectively as the church are the bride of Christ. You can be a part of the bride of Christ by believing in Jesus. You can have the safety and security, the provision and the protection that comes from Jesus Christ when you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when you recognize that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, but you rely completely on the work of Jesus, who died in your place for your sins and rose again, that by faith alone you would be made right with God forever. The second coming of Jesus would no longer be a terror for you if you're a believer, but instead you look forward to the second coming of Jesus as the bridegroom comes to get his bride. Marriage is an amazing picture, and as marriage is defined by its designer, as we look to the book that the Creator has given us, we can see that marriage is very good, and it even gives the differences between men and women. We'll say, for the sake of the message this morning, femininity and masculinity, it gives these two ideals a stage and a spotlight. Marriage, as God has designed it, gives, gives a spotlight, gives a chance to shine this idea of men and women being different, being complementary, being very good. The two coming together in a beautiful blessing of God. So having established that, I want to talk about God's design for these roles, for men and for women. And we'll go ladies first today. Uh, wanting you to see the beauty of femininity in God's design. I want you to see the beauty of femininity in the design of God as He has made man and woman different. Whether you've been married or not, whether you plan to get married or not, this applies to each of us. And as we go through this, I want to contrast what the world has to offer women and what the world has to offer men with what God has to offer women and men. And so as we think about the beauty of femininity, I want to start with the world. The world seeks to rob women of their God-given beauty. There's no doubt about this. The world seeks to destroy what God has designed. And I want to talk about some of their lies. 
the biggest lie that really undergirds so much of the world today is feminism. Feminism is a philosophy, it's a movement that uh, seeks to uh, tell women that they have the same role and function as men in all of society, that there's no essential difference between men and women. Today, one of the nasty manifestations of this uh, philosophy is the abortion movement. Well, what drives the abortion movement? What keeps driving so many women to say, yeah, let's kill more children? It's feminism is what it is. Because having a child means you have to be a mother, and if you have to be a mother, well, then you're limited in what you can do. And so women, of course, in their view, should be free from that, and let's kill the babies is their solution. That's what drives abortion is this lie of feminism. There's also a full-scale war on men that we're living in the middle of. There's, there's a, a battle every day in nearly every institution that exists that's a, a, an all-out assault on masculinity and just men in general. And it's fueled by, it's driven by feminism. It's invaded much of our society. They target schools specifically. Uh, I was uh, just listening to a radio program earlier this week that was talking about the tens of millions of dollars that are being spent by individual schools. Right now, I think it's mostly in larger school districts on therapy for kids who are in the schools. Uh, They can, most of the time, not in person, but they can, on the school's dime, get connected with a secular counselor away from their parents without their parents' knowledge and be affected by whatever secular psychology is being offered. Uh, No doubt, feminism being one of those things that's accepted by them and pushed by them. And children are being raised in this. So many children are being raised in such wrong thinking. Of course, no submission to God, no consideration of God's design, but all about you get what you want. Churches have been affected too. There are many churches that have been feminized, that have driven men out and have turned women into brawlers. Women are encouraged to see themselves as victims, to go find their oppressors and to fight them. And that is driving much of society. Churches not exempt. It's a very angry movement that seeks to destroy Christian values. Again, no doubt about it. It's an angry, selfish, prideful movement that seeks to destroy what Scripture says about who men are and who women are. To give you an example, this is a tweet I stumbled across this week, and you probably won't be able to read it up on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Um, there's, on Twitter, you, you look and see what was said first by going second. All right, So the above is a commentary on this post. There's a Christian woman who posted these pictures of her daughter, and uh, she said, I'm, I'm teaching my daughter that it's perfectly acceptable to depend on a man, that being a homemaker is the number one career she should strive for, and that serving her husband and bearing children will be <laughs> her greatest joy. Well, feminism doesn't like that. And so a feminist responded saying, oh, I wasn't done. <laughs> a feminist responded, by saying, few things can fill me with as much unbridled rage as anti-feminist mothers of girls, repugnant class traitors. Angry, angry movement, seeking to destroy Christian values. It has 4.2 million views at the time I screen captured that with 114,000 likes. So um, it's alive and well, this feminist movement, and connected to that, we have certain things that are told especially to the young women in our society. Young women are encouraged, of course, to get more attention. A few minutes on social media reveals that in short order. 
Uh, this is nothing new, okay? It's not like this is a new thing that anyone would seek for attention. But if you were to jump onto TikTok, something I would not recommend, it would only take you a couple of moments to realize that feminism has worked its way down to middle school age, high school age children. Uh, they are being encouraged to act like fools, to get more and more attention for themselves. There are more and more public outlets for young women to do this. Many women are encouraged to follow their feelings to whatever, to whatever they feel. Just submit to whatever you feel as that must be right for you. The only wrong is to say that there is a wrong. And so you be your own God, essentially, is what this is, self-worship, and follow your feelings because that must be what's right for you. Well, let me tell you, ladies in attendance today, God has something so much better. Can I just tell you that God has something so much better for you than this emptiness, than this despair that the world would offer? There is there's something so much more that God has for you, and God has instructed women in His Word how to embrace the calling they've been given. It starts with the gospel. It doesn't start with anything else but Jesus. Instead of following your feelings, the answer is to follow Jesus. Instead of getting more attention, the answer is to give Jesus more attention. That's where it all begins, starting with Jesus being central to your worldview. But from there, as we look at how God has instructed His people in His Word, to serve Him, and how, he's, how He has instructed women specifically to serve Him, if you synthesize those texts, we see that Christian women are called to gentleness, they're called to modesty, they're called to, here's the bad word, submission. And when you synthesize the text of the Bible, this is how God has designed and encouraged women to live. And I want us to see this together. Uh, let's turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, toward the very back of your Bible. If you're still in Genesis, go all the way across toward the end of your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And now this is a passage that's specifically written to women who have husbands who are not Christians, but I believe that you'll see some ideals here that can be taken out and applied to all Christian women, no matter what phase of life you're in or what your specific situation is. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1, this apostle writes, 1 Peter 3, 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Well, in a situation like this, what would the world say? If a woman is married to a man who doesn't support her, that's essentially what's going on here in this situation. The world would say, the feminist would say, well, run over them. If you even want to be with them, just leave them if you want. That's the world's answer. That's what feminism says. But what does God say? God says that you can win him even without a word by certain behaviors. Certain behaviors you were designed for, ladies. Certain behaviors that God calls good. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? 
The beauty of femininity is seen in the home. I think this is really where it starts. It's not the only place it is, but this is where it starts. As Christian wives submit to their husbands and nurture their children as God has instructed, fulfilling the role of helper that God has given them if they weren't called to singleness. Remember before the fall, God created Eve as a helper for Adam. That wasn't a role that came in after sin entered the world. That was before sin entered the world. And it's very, very good. So the wife is to embrace the pre-fall commission that she was given to help her husband. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Again, this is Paul. And he phrased it this way, speaking to Christian wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands, to their husbands, in everything. Christian women, Christian wives, are called to embrace the pre-fall commission to submit to their husbands. And as mothers in the home, those who have children in the home, Christian mothers are to focus on keeping the home as their primary responsibility, caring for their children and helping their husbands. In Titus chapter 2, this is Titus 2 verses 3 through 5, again, the Apostle Paul writes, instructing women in the church, "'Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good.'" so that they may encourage the young women to, here it is, love their husbands, to love their children, and to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see, a lot of the same themes come up in these passages. This is the beautiful, intentional design of God. This is one of those differences between men and women, that men are called to lead and women are called to submit and to see as their, one of their primary responsibilities to nurture their children in keeping the home. And I should say, too, that in that, what an amazing evangelistic opportunity women have with their children to be the ones who share the gospel over and over and over again. We know that much of being a mom feels like doing things over and over and over again. And how blessed it is that one of those things is being an evangelist. You get to be an evangelist every day to your children. And let me tell you, moms, you have something that no one else in the world has, which is a particular influence over your children. They may have a lot of women in their lives, but they only got one mom. And you get to be one of the primary evangelists in their lives. How amazing is that? Well, it's not just in the home where we see these differences come to light. It's also in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about these things, starting in verse 7. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 7, reading down through verse 12. Paul says, again, instructing the church, for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent from man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. I just love the way Paul comes at this topic. Uh, In so many ways, he, he writes about this in many of his letters. It was an issue that the church needed then, just as the church needs now. And Paul has us think about origins. Woman has her origin through the man. Remember that whole Eve and the rib story? Okay. And man has his birth through the woman. We are not independent of each other, which is, of course, another lie of feminism, that you are to be free, woman. You are to be independent. No one is independent. No one. No man is independent. No woman is independent, truly. And so in the church, we are to recognize that, and we are also called to recognize these differences in the sense that woman is to submit to man in the church. Verse 7 again of 1 Corinthians 11, a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Paul didn't permit women to teach or have authority in the church, and we'll get to that passage here in a few moments. And we follow the apostles' instruction on that. This is the apostles' good instruction under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's design for His church. But women, of course, can still minister in some very profound ways in the church. Just because someone is leading, that doesn't mean everyone else has nothing to do, okay? But women, of course, are called to do some amazing acts of service in the church. We just saw in Titus chapter 2 that the older women are to instruct the younger women. That should be happening in our church. Women are to be teaching women in our church. There are ways that women can speak into the lives of other women in in very unique ways and can help them along and mentor them and disciple them in the truth. Just yesterday, we had a women's breakfast here with over 20 women here. It's awesome. And that's the way it should be. It shouldn't have been all of you getting together and then I come in and say whatever I want to say, okay? Uh, You should have those times and you should have discipleship where women instruct women. Of course, women have a special ministry among the children. Our nursery ministry here is women only. Praise God for that, huh? (laughs) We can be very thankful. Now, of course, men could do that, but we recognize that the ideal is for women to be in there, that God has given them a uniquely nurturing way of caring for children. And that's good. There are actually countless opportunities for women to serve and to bless others in the church. But it's not just in the home and it's not just in the church, but it's also in society where godly women can have an impact. Women who have been redeemed by Christ are to be truth-speaking evangelists in the culture. They're to be missionaries. They're to be those who go out into a lost and dying world and offer the cold drink of water of Jesus to their neighbors or to wherever God may send them. They're to be bold examples of godliness and If there's room left over, if you still have bandwidth with all these other things going on, Christian women can also be mothers to the motherless. And I speak as someone who's been deeply affected by Christian women. When my mom died when I was 16, I immediately had other mothers because I was in a local church. I didn't have a Christian mother. I didn't have a mother at all. But I had women in the local church who loved me, who invited me to come to their house, who cared for me like I was their own son. And that's an amazing ministry. For a young man who has no mom, it really, really helps whenever Christian women fit that that role and step up to meet that need. 
So far from being limited with nothing to do, there are many important ministries for women just as there are for men. But as we see the beauty of biblical femininity, I want us to also see the blessing of masculinity. And I'm going to call masculinity a blessing. The world is calling it toxic, but I'm calling it a blessing. Biblical masculinity is a blessing. It, of course, can be bad. There can be bad men out there, just as there are bad women out there. That's certainly a possibility. But biblical masculinity is good. It is so good that we can say it's a blessing. Let's consider for a moment what the world says. Uh, The world, of course, seeks to steal the blessing of masculinity. The world seeks to distort or otherwise eliminate masculinity in the culture. You see that all over today. Um, In fact, today, I think the world mostly just gives men lose-lose propositions in life, where men don't have a choice but to let people down. That's all they can do, especially if your skin lacks some melanin in it. If you're a white guy, then you're just usually the, the target of many movements that are out there in the world today. You're being blamed over and over again for other people's sins. That's how many men feel right now, It's just being blamed for nothing that they did. Men are the problem is a mantra that gets repeated in our culture. We have many boys, many young men who are being raised with this idea that men are the problem, that their chromosomes are cursed, they're told that their strength is bad, and that they should just try to not be who God created them to be, but instead they should be women. And the result is that many men feel no purpose. Many men feel like they don't have a place in society. There are many men who are depressed and who are dealing with anxiety because the world just constantly tells them there's no place for them. There's no purpose and life is pointless for men. Men are the victims of our enemy in many ways. We know that our enemy, Satan himself, he lies and he kills And he's seeking to decapitate the head of society by going after men. I truly believe that. We have to recognize that's what the world is up to, is putting men down. And really the only hint of purpose that the world can offer men is hedonism, which is just doing whatever you want to do. Go out and just do whatever you want, that you will find your purpose in stuff. You will find your purpose in experiences that the point of working is just to accumulate and rack up all kinds of stuff, and you'll find your purpose there. But we know, of course, that's hollow. That's not the answer. It is idolatry, and that produces its own results. It produces a generation of men who aren't providing for anyone, who aren't protecting anyone, especially true of teens, young men. I'll see sometimes online these uh, videos of fights that happen, which are kind of like... uh, I don't know, like a car crash or something where you want to look away, but you keep one eye open. And it's like, what's going on there? And I really don't understand it. I I don't have the impulse whenever there's a fight happening around me to take out my phone. I don't understand how anyone even starts recording before a fight starts. I just don't get that. But what you'll see in a lot of these videos, not only is there someone recording who's not doing anything, but you'll see people fighting and there are just like people standing around a lot of young men standing around. You'll see videos of two women fighting or a man beating up a woman and young men with hands in their pockets. They don't know their purpose. They don't know their role. They're afraid to get, it, get involved. This is what our society is producing. And maybe we're just seeing it more because social media is more prevalent. I don't know. But I know what I'm seeing, and I know it's not what God has called them to. 
but he's given them more than that. We see many young men today not caring about virtue. Many older men today not caring about virtue. Many men are just slaves to the paycheck, wanting more and more money for more and more things because that is the only purpose the world can offer them. Many of the men, of course, are addicted to pornography or drugs or both, and they're just living to pay those bills. They're addicted to many other ways of checking out of this world, and God is just in the way of that downward spiral of purposelessness that goes down the drain. And so they don't want anything to do with God. They really don't want anything to do with society who doesn't like them. They just want, you know, fill in the blank will make them feel good for a short period of time. Well, men, let me tell you, just as I told the ladies, God has something much better for you. There is something much better than living paycheck to paycheck, searching for more stuff or more experiences. That old phrase, he with the most toys wins. That really hasn't gone away. The toys have just changed. And that philosophy is just as bad as it's always been. There is something more for you that God has for you. And let's start here. You have a purpose in life. God has given you a purpose. You are to be responsible. In fact, you could word it this way. God has made you responsible. And you could say, well, does that mean that, you know, just by virtue of being a man, I can say I'm a responsible person? No, that's not what that means, okay? There are many guys that are not responsible people, but God has made you responsible in the sense that God has given you much to lead. God has given people and things under your influence and has called you to manage those things well for His glory, and you are responsible for those things. God has a purpose for you to steward the earth, to subdue the earth, to go out and to take dominion of things and be creative and to lead a woman well and to lead children well. God's, God's given you that, that you would have some purpose in that. When we synthesize the texts that are written about men, just like we synthesize texts about women, we see that men are called to lead with sacrificial love in the truth. I mean, what could you say is like the overall purpose for Christian men? To lead with sacrificial love in the truth. I think that pretty well sums it up. Again, going to 1 Corinthians 11, this is 1 Corinthians 11.3. Here, the Apostle Paul writes, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. That sounds like responsibility there, doesn't it, men? That sounds like you've got a purpose here in life, doesn't it? That there's something that God has called you to do, and it's absolutely true. In the home, men are just, they're not just the ones who go check out the bumps in the night, even though that is part of it. 2 a.m., you hear a clatter. There arose such a clatter. It's the time of season I could say that. Um, one of you is going to be throwing your leg over the side of the bed. And it better not be her, or men, okay? It better not be her. It should be you. You don't send your wife off to war, do you? That's your role, is to go check it out. But that's not your only role. Consider what Ephesians 5.25 says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Can you think of a higher calling? Can you think of anything higher than that? But to love as Christ loved? What an amazing and precious responsibility you have, Christian man. 
to love your wife with Christ's sacrificial love. That's what God has given you, to be the passionate provider and protector, to love with a love that isn't contingent. Have you noticed in your relationship with Jesus that he doesn't say, I'll keep loving you and and doing good things for you if you do this or that? Have you noticed that Jesus doesn't say, my shift's over? Now, you are not the eternal son of God who exists outside of time and space, okay? You have limitations, I get that. But loving as Jesus loves his church, loving your wife as Jesus loves the church, means you offer a love that's not transactional. It's not contingent. You offer a love that is truly sacrificial at the core. It's rooted in the truth that truly wants the best for your wife. And consistent Christ-like love is not only seen with wives, but with children. Fathers are to be the leaders in raising children as well. Planning, serving, teaching, disciplining. Men are called to be involved with raising kids. That's like maybe paradigm shifting for some people. That's not just a woman's job, but men are to lead in these ways too. Consider what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He uses the differences between fathers and mothers as an illustration. He writes to this church talking about his time there, and he says, When we were there, we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So we see the role of the mother here is to be gentle and tenderly care for children. And he said, we imitated that when we were among you. That was part of the way that we lived with you. They obviously weren't treating them like children, but we were gentle and nurturing like a mother. Now he uses fathers as an illustration, just a few verses down, starting in verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, where it says, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So men are to be leading in this admonishment, this instruction, this exhortation, this encouragement. They're to be the head coach of the house when it comes to raising children. Men are called to be involved in that way and can have an absolutely profound impact on a child's life. Do you know what a good relationship with your father does? Some of you do. And some of you know just because you don't have that. Think of what an impact you can make, Christian man, with your children as a consistent, Christ-like, loving encourager in your children's lives. You're changing a life by doing that. It's an amazing role that we get to fill. But it's not just in the home. We see the blessing of masculinity also in the church. We saw already in 1 Corinthians 11 how men are called to lead, and that is symbolized in the church. And we see it also in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to start in chapter 2 and then read into chapter 3 just a bit. But 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 11... Again, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a pastor, and he says, starting in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. 
And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be, per, will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And then look at where he goes next. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So men are called to lead not only in the home, but also in the church. And there are certain qualifications for men that are listed as you go on through chapter 3 and you read down really through verse 13, where it talks about the role of men in church leadership. Men are to be the ones who lead the way Christ led by laying down his life for the sheep. Pastors are to imitate that to lay down their own lives in the way that they lead. And men generally in the church, no matter what kind of role you have in your service, you are to generally model that kind of sacrifice. Just yesterday, as over 20 women were meeting here for Bible study, we had men in here who were meeting for the safety team. And just as we don't have men in the nursery rotation, we don't have women on the safety rotation. And I think that's very good. Now again, we could... We could, but I don't think that's the ideal, is it? We recognize that, that men are the ones who are called to protect. Men are the ones who are called to step up and, if need be, lay down their lives. We, again, we don't send our women to battle. Men are to do that. The leaders are to do that, to lay down their lives. But it's not just in the home and in the church. It's also in society, Men have a purpose that extends beyond the home and the church, even into society. And I'm not just talking about being our sheet metal workers or football players, even though men are necessary for those things, okay? We wouldn't have, uh, you know, the best NFL if it was all women. In fact, I just saw a women's college basketball game yesterday, and we wouldn't have the best college basketball if it was only women. Sorry, it's true. Um, Men are necessary in more ways than that. Men are to be the ones who display the bold strength that God has given them out in the society too, out in the culture. Men are to be the ones who lead with truth and conviction in the culture and be the risk takers and the stability makers. Men are the ones who go out to war, the ones that God sends out into war to make a difference in the world. And Christian men, no matter what your job is, there are all kinds of different occupations that exist in our fellowship. Whatever it is, take your your blessed masculinity that God has given you into the workplace. Take your bold strength with you. Take your leading with conviction and truth with you. Take the gospel with you. Make a difference in the world because God has designed you for that purpose, to make a difference, to subdue the earth to exercise the rule that He's given you, to influence those that He's put under your influence for Him. That is your grand purpose in the world. There's not only a place for you, there's a place at the front for you, men. And there's not only like a putting up with you, there's a support of you here. This church will support biblical masculinity. We won't say it's toxic. We won't say that men are always the problem. We'll say men are mostly the problem. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) This church is going to uphold what God has said, and that includes supporting men, women, and children in the truth. Men and their leadership are necessary and vital to the home, to the church, and to society as a whole. Absolutely vital. 
And one of the most powerful things we can do as a church is support these roles as God has designed them, as God has revealed them in the Bible. One of the most powerful things we can be doing right now in almost 2024 America is to support what God has said and make sure that the men and women of this church feel that support. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not only made us, but that you have revealed to us what it is that we are to do. Help us to be reinvigorated, to fulfill the purpose that you've given us, to live the way that you've called us to live, to serve in the ways you've called us to serve, that you would get all the glory, that Jesus would be made famous through our lives, that people would know of him, and that we would give all that we have to you, knowing that you're the one who gave it to us and it's all for you. Help us to do that intentionally. Help us to encourage one another in that. And even more, as we see the day approaching, that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds as you've defined them. Lord, thank you for all these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.